reality um, that we see in the text. So there's a theme and a reality. So first is the theme. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. We're going to see as we read Nehemiah chapter 10, the theme of covenant. The theme of covenant. Now, that's probably a word that you are pretty familiar with. We think about covenant in the terms of a marriage covenant, uh, a church membership covenant. We think about covenant uh, as just being something associated with the Bible in general. But if somebody were to ask you, what is a covenant? Would you have a definition? Would you know how to explain it? Uh, Let me give you a definition from Derek Thomas. Uh, Just a side note, resource-wise, I got this definition from an article in the back of one of my study Bibles. If you don't have a good study Bible, that's a great resource. Uh, This one is called the Reformation Study Bible. It has great articles um, that are helpful along the way. And in it, it's an article uh, on this topic, Derek Thomas writes that a covenant is a relationship between two parties involving stipulations and a clear promise of threat depending on compliance. Now, that's kind of wordy, but it's basically saying that this is a a relationship that is set up and is bound uh, by stipulations. And if those stipulations are kept, there will be blessing. If those stipulations are broken, there will be cursing or threats. So when you think about biblical covenants, what do you think of? You think of probably the old covenant, right? The new covenant. But there's so many covenants in the Bible. Uh, Just think about uh, the big covenants that we see in the Old Testament. We have the Noahic covenant, right? In Genesis chapter 9. The Abrahamic covenant that we read about in Genesis 12 and 21 and 17. We've got the Mosaic covenant, right? That feels like the biggie to us. That is in Exodus 34. We've got the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel Seven And of course, we have the new covenant uh, that is uh, promised and looked forward to in Jeremiah chapter 31, but is ultimately inaugurated uh, at the Last Supper where Jesus announces the new covenant in his blood. So um, lots of covenant, and you're going to see that brought out here in Nehemiah chapter uh, 10. And you may or may not be familiar with the idea of covenant theology. Covenant theology, we're not going to go in depth into it. It's worth looking at if you have interest. But uh, in short, covenant theology provides a framework, namely covenant, through which to view the entire history of redemption. So we're looking at this big story of God, the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and covenant theology says, let's look at that through the lens of God's covenant with his people. And covenant theology specifically reminds us, and I think that this is the piece of it that will be particularly helpful to us today, is that all the covenants in the Bible— All the covenants in the Bible fall under the umbrella of one primary covenant, and we can call that the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Why is this important? Think about this. Don't miss this. The covenant of grace. Why is this important? It means that the law of God, the Mosaic covenant, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, it was never meant to save the people. It was never meant to save Israel. Israel's salvation was secured in the same way that your salvation is secured, in the same way that mine is secured, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the one true God 
alone. And all the biblical covenants include one central promise. There are other stipulations bound to all the different covenants, but they all embody one specific promise for those who keep covenant. At the center, again, Derek Thomas writes, at the center of the biblical covenants lies the promise encapsulated in the statement, I will be your God and you will be my people. Exodus 30, not Exodus 34, Exodus 6, verse 7, but also countless other places in the scripture, but Exodus 6, 7 to name one. That is the promise of the covenant. God says, if you enter into covenant with me, because I have initiated covenant with you, I will be your God and you will be. As the Shane and Shane song is titled, we can embrace the accusation. We can acknowledge the truth in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Israel did. Do you remember that last week? It was a whole seven days ago, right? Do you remember that last week? That last week Israel looked back on their history and they acknowledged and confessed the sins in their history, the sins of their fathers and their present sin. They acknowledged their sin They saw and praised God for how good he is. And as a result of looking back, knowing how good and gracious this morning, in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. All right. So Nehemiah 9.38, Nehemiah 9.38, if you look back down, says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. So this is the moment. They had confessed their sins, and now they're putting something down on paper to make it official and serious. And there's a couple things to notice from that verse. The leaders of the people in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 8 had rejoiced. Do you remember that? They heard the word of God. They, many of them were hearing it for the first time. They started to weep, but instead they were instructed to rejoice. But then in Nehemiah chapter 9, that's when they wept, and that's when they confessed, and that's when they grieved their history. And now they're making a covenant. And more accurately, they're renewing the covenant that they were already in with God, initiated by God. And so we want to notice that actually the word covenant here, or maybe not notice, but point out that in the original Hebrew, the word covenant isn't even actually in that verse. There's a different word used um, that the emphasis of the word is faithfulness. So the recommitment to the covenant is clear, but the, the word used emphasizes faithfulness an important reality. Why? Well, because of what they were looking back at. Again, remember the first part of that last verse, because of all this. Because of all what? Because of all of their unfaithfulness. The reason they found it so important to stand before God, representing the people and emphasize a recommitment to faithfulness because of, is because of everything they had just recounted about their unfaithfulness faithfulness. And remember, don't miss this. This was all in light of God's unfathomable faithfulness. Faithfulness. Again, look back at Nehemiah 9, 17. They declared and they knew historically and experientially that God was a God ready to forgive them, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he did not ever forsake them. This is huge, church. We can't miss this because this is the gospel. Amen? This is the gospel that God chooses and saves his people by grace through faith. And in response to his grace, his people 
Don't just feel forced to obey him. Don't just feel forced to be faithful to him, but choose willingly as an act of worship to obey him, to commit to follow him, to commit to submit to him. And all of this in both the old and new covenants are under that covenant of grace. Everything that we talk about, about God and his people is all under this umbrella of God's grace to us. The people here are responding to God's word. Again, context is key here, church. You can get lost in the clunkiness of Nehemiah chapter 10, but we have to remember where we started with the reading of God's word, the confession of sin, the acknowledgement of grace, and now the decision to declare as a community that they would, in fact, obey God. So let's look at the rest of Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, this covenant renewal. Um, That's basically what chapter 10 is, is a covenant renewal. Let's look at that entire chapter uh, basically in three parts. Part number one, we see a covenant people. We see a covenant people. In Nehemiah 10, 1 through 27, we read a list of 84 names, 84 signers on this document renewing the covenant. Now, this seems a little bit silly. They're they're going to God. Like, when was the last time we went before God and we wrote a document right here and we all came up here and signed it? It feels strange, but it's not strange because it's emphasizing the significance of their commitment. They don't know how to fully express how unfaithful they've been and how dedicated to faithfulness they now are. And so they do it by doing what they know know how to do, writing it down and having a significant number of people in their community put their names on it. Their names meant something. And so these 84 people put their names down here. And in verse 29, it tells us what they are doing. They are entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, again, this covenant people that we see here in chapter 10 can be divided into five groups. And I think it's important to notice the diversity of these groups. The first two names, Nehemiah and Zedekiah, are civic leaders. It tells us that Nehemiah is the governor. So they represented um, kind of the civilization, the society, the governmental side of things. But then we have 21 priests 21 priests, and you have to recognize who these priests stood for. They represented families and clans of people. So they were not just putting their name on this document for themselves, but for groups of people that they represented. And then we have 17 Levites. Do you remember who the Levites are? I mean, number one, they're the people charged with stewarding the temple. And and again, talking about context, it's so hard to remember the greater context, but everything about Ezra and Nehemiah has been centered on what? Worship, right? They, They were coming back to Jerusalem. They started with the altar. They rebuilt the temple. They put the walls around the city to protect them so that they could worship God on God's terms. That's what the Levites were charged with. And the Levites were the one last week in Nehemiah chapter 9 that led the way, spoke for the people, penned this beautiful prayer of remembrance and confession. So their names are on this covenant renewal document. And then 44 chiefs. Chiefs is used in the ESV in verse 14. Princes is used in chapter 9, 38. But it's just better understood leaders. These other 44 names, many of which are obscure to us, were lay leaders. 
They weren't priests. They weren't Levites. They didn't have any prominent role with the government. They were much like you, uh, much like the majority of us, people of God leading the way voluntarily for God's glory. And they put their names on this document. And then finally, in verse 28, we read that this covenant was being made not simply by the signers, but by the rest of the people. Do you see that in verse 28? Kind of a generic catch-all term, but it doesn't signify a lack of value, right? The rest of the people represented thousands of God's people trusting God and renewing their covenant. So do you feel the significance of this? This was a weighty thing that they were doing, and they recognized that. And I think that there is probably a helpful application for us as a New Testament church, as a local church regarding church membership. Some people balk at the idea of church membership for a variety of reasons, and and I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes understandably so. Um, Church membership and authority has too often been abused, but this people right here, was clearly a people. That's the point. It was clearly a people. There was a marked out people. There were the people of God, and there were people that were not the people of God. Commentator and pastor Jim Hamilton notes, what this tells us is that the people of Israel knew who was in and who was out. It's kind of feels kind of like snotty language to me a little bit, right? But it's important. God has always cared about distinction, his distinction of his people. It tells us that they knew who was in and who was out. They had a firm idea about who was part of the people of God and who was not. And church, that's the purpose of church membership. That's the purpose of biblical church membership. So my question is, are you a member of a local church? Are you a member of any local church? Are you a member of this local church? Because of course it's important, your personal relationship with Christ. It's important that you know you're a Christian and it's important that God knows you're a Christian. But hear me loud and clear, that's not where the importance ends. It's also important that we know that you're a Christian and that you know we're Christians so that we as your leaders can know who has decided to submit themselves to this local church and to God. It's important for each one of us so that we can know who we are supposed to one another. Do you know what I mean by that? Love one another, care for one another, submit to one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. All these one another's we do for the people who have said, I want to be one anothered by you. And I, I, I want that for myself and I want that for you. So important. It's also important to know who's in and who's out for the people outside the faith. Just one example of that is by declaring, I am covenanting, I'm joining with a local church. I am a Jesus follower and I'm submitting to this church so that people who are not believers can know there's a difference, can know that the the rampant heresy that's around today of universalism, that as long as I'm sincere in my approach to God or to a higher power, I'm good. Church family, your decision to declare Jesus is Lord and connect yourself to his body testifies to the world that they are in need of something, of a redeemer, of a savior, that they are outside of God and they can be inside of God. Amen. We want them to see the distinction, not because we're better. Lord knows we're not. We are sinners saved by grace and they can be too. Amen. So 
important, so important. I went way longer than that than I meant to. Maybe, maybe that's the step you need to take today, though. Uh, seriously, it's just, man, the longer that you're a part of a church that's following hard after God, the longer you see, or the more deeply you see the beauty of it. So I'd encourage you, if you are not a member of any church and you're not a member of this local church, then don't feel forced or rushed, but set up an appointment with me or Pastor Stephen or one of our elders, and let's just talk biblically about what that means and how beautiful and valuable it is for you as a Christian. So important. All right, part two. Part one was the covenant people. Part two is the actual covenant renewal itself. So look back down at verse 28 of chapter 10. This is the actual covenant renewal. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So how did this renewal take shape? I think there's a few things we want to notice. Number one, Israel renewed the covenant together. Do you see that massive list of people? Not just the specific names, but all the different uh, groups of people that were listed, including everyone who has knowledge and understanding. This was not an individual endeavor. The, the people of God were always meant to be a people, um, renewing this covenant together in community. The second thing we notice is that God's promise remained in view. Remember what we said is the consistent promises, promise of all the biblical covenants. God said, I will be with you as your God and you will be my people. This was the motivation. This was the hope. Again, context. Remember the last couple of chapters. They remembered and recognized how unfaithful they had been and how long-suffering and merciful God had been with them. If you think about it logically, there's no other response right, than to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, I'm all in with you. I trust you because you've proven yourself trustworthy. I want to obey you because you've proven that your laws are for my good. They were banking on the fact that having the one true God as their God was better than anything else they could ever go after. We also see that the covenant renewal involved an oath. What is an oath? It's just a promise just a promise, right? Promises are significant, and we'll unpack the specifics of their promises in a moment, and make no mistake, if you noticed the last part of chapter 10, their promises were pretty specific, but the point here is to understand the weightiness, the weightiness of what they were doing. Israel was saying, God, we are committing to observe so to sit under the reading and the teaching and the instruction of your word, just like we're doing here this morning, but we're not just going to sit here and do nothing with it. Observation alone is not the covenant commitment. We are also going to do all that you have instructed us in your law. Guys, that is weighty. You don't want to make that commitment flippantly. Observe and do. They were promising that to their God. And finally, they were accepting, they were accepting the reality of covenant cursing. 
Again, a word we don't use very often in church, but in the same way that the goal was God's blessing, faithfulness to the covenant equaled God's blessing, the people were acknowledging the consequence that would come if they broke covenant again because they had seen those consequences before, the consequences being the curse of God upon them. For them and for us, this should be a terrifying, humbling and sobering biblical reality because it's a part of God's covenant. And with this sobering piece of covenant renewal in view, I just want to pause for a moment and invite you, each of us, together to feel the seriousness of covenant renewal. God's people were committing to receive the condemnation due them for breaking the covenant. In this moment, they were so desperate for God. They were so desperate for God that they were willing to step into a covenant that they had historically broken so they could be his people, so that he would be with them as their God. I want you to really stop and think about that. Do you want God like that? Do you want God so desperately that you're willing to look at your sin and realize what it deserves, what you deserve, and then look at God's unfathomable mercy and throw yourself upon his great grace? We have to sit in that sometimes. Do you want God? Because in reality, he is our goal. He is, as John Piper says, the gospel. God is the gospel. In a little while, we are going to have the opportunity, as we do every month uh, on the first Sunday of the month, to renew renew our new covenant commitment to the Lord. And we can do that through the Lord's Supper. And when we do, I want to invite you to actually take the time that we set aside to feel the weight of your sin, to examine yourself, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, and then remember, remember, remember the grace and mercy of our God. Part one was God's covenant people. Part two of chapter 10 was the covenant renewal. And part three is those specific covenant promises that Israel made in verses 30 through 39. In this final part of Israel's covenant renewal, I want you to remember something and notice something about these promises. First, remember. Remember that each promise that Israel made was rooted first and foremost in their trust in God. Church family, order matters so much, especially when we're talking about the reality of the covenant curses. Order matters. We have to start with trust in our God who has promised a way of salvation. We have to start there. We have to start with that. Remember that the promises that we are going to see laid out in verses 30 through 39, even in Old Covenant Israel, was rooted in their trust in God's mercy and grace. Second, notice that their obedience was a response. Their obedience was a response to their trust in God and their trust in his word. Grace came first and obedience flowed happily 
happily from grace. I want to talk to the teenagers in the room today. If there's teenagers in the room, I feel like I was talking to, I think, somebody this morning um, just about sometimes as kids and as teenagers, our, um, our tendency to rebel a little bit against our you know, the things that our parents have taught us when it comes to God, because they feel like handcuffs. They feel like rules. We learn the Ten Commandments, right? We learn the laws of God. And so we naturally in our humanity want to push back and rebel against that. Teenagers, all of us, but teenagers, I want to talk specifically to you. I want you to know that, that the law of God is only handcuffs, if, is if that is only handcuffs if that's where you're looking for your salvation. Does that make sense? We look to God's grace through Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation. And then we realize, oh my gosh, this God who saves sinners like me, all of his commandments are good for me. They're not handcuffs, they're freedom. It's for freedom that he set us free. So if you've tended to look to the law first, I would encourage you look to the cross first. And then you just, it's, I can't even fully describe it. You won't believe me until you experience, but then you want to know God's rules. You want to know God's ways because of what Psalm 25 tells us, that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For who? For those who keep his covenant and his testimony. All right, so obedience always flows from grace. Notice that all of these covenant promises in Nehemiah 10 come down to obedience to God's word. We're not going to unpack these in depth, but let me just put them in some broad categories of obedience to God's word, rooted in grace. But in verse 30, Israel promised to obey the word of God in marriage relationships. They promised to obey the word of God in marriage relationships. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We have to think all the way back to Pastor Stephen's sermon on Ezra chapter 9, not Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9. It was a while back when intermarrying had been an issue. Apparently, it continued to be an issue because they addressed it specifically here, or, or a potential threat. So they address it in the covenant renewal process. And it's important to remember here, as in Ezra 9, that God was not forbidding interracial or interethnic marriages. Hear me clearly. God was not forbidding interracial or interethnic marriages. He was forbidding interreligious marriages. Interreligious marriages. Again, a plug for good study Bibles. In one of my study Bibles, the Grace and Truth Study Bible, there was a helpful note. It says, as with Ezra, so now in Nehemiah's time, interreligious marriages continued to trouble the spiritual integrity of God's people. Ezra had already addressed the issue among the families of the priesthood in Ezra 9. Later in the book of Nehemiah, intermarriage resulted in children who could not speak Hebrew. Why did that matter? Well, it left them unable to read the scriptures. God's people were not to marry outside the faith. God's people were not intended to marry outside of the faith, meaning that, that we should never, ever believe the lie that it's a sin to have inter-ethnic marriages. That's a beautiful display of God's redeeming grace and his heart for all peoples of all nations. Amen? The problem came for Israel and comes for us when we marry outside of our faith, because then our allegiance is intentionally divided. 
right? I'm trying to serve the one true God. I'm trying to train up my children in that way, the only way that they should go. And my spouse is not. My spouse is devoted to a false God or no God at all. That's the issue that they were facing here. That's the issue that they were committing to avoid. And the same is true for us today. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14, you've heard this. He says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Unless we begin to get arrogant and act like we're better than unbelievers, let us be reminded of Nehemiah chapter 9 and the people looking back on their repeated rebellion. When I look back on my life, I have done nothing deserving of salvation, nothing deserving of being in God's kingdom. It's all of God and all of his grace to me. And so I choose to marry a God worshiper because, not because I'm better, but because my goal in life is to worship God, me, myself, husband and wife and family. Now, a word to those of you who are in a marriage where one spouse is believing and one spouse is unbelieving, there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You are going to hit some bumps, and your calling now is to be on your knees regularly, praying that God's grace would change the heart of your unbelieving spouse. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. We live in less than the ideal, right? We live in a fallen world. But if you haven't entered into an interreligious marriage, don't. Don't. It will divide your devotion. It will distract you from your primary objective, which is to worship God, which is to worship God. The covenant commitment was to, to not marry interreligiously because God demands our worship. Then in verse 31, Israel promised to obey the word of God regarding the Sabbath. So first obey the word of God regarding marriage, then obey the word of God regarding the Sabbath. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What are they talking about here? Well, you have to remember that the Sabbath was the sign and the seal of the Mosaic covenant, just like circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and baptism and the Lord's Supper are the signs and seals of the new covenant. The Sabbath was significant. It was a tangible demonstration of what we've been talking about, of the people's trust in God. And it was a witness to the pagan people groups around them. The people were promising They were promising God that they would trust him by resting one out of every seven days. They were promising that they would trust him by resting the land. What does that mean? Like literally, they were not going to harvest or plant or work the land one year out of seven. These were life and death decisions of dependence. They were saying, God, we trust you so much that we will rest because you've told us to, and we know that it's good for us. We see that also in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, when they, 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 uh, they relieve people of the debts that they owed. This was a massive decision of dependence. 
So I just ask you, how are you thinking about the Sabbath? Different Christians come to different convictions, biblical convictions of how to approach the Sabbath. And I'm not going to try to convince you of a conviction today. My question just is, have you thought about it? And is your life characterized by such a trust in God that you could actually rest? You could put the phone away. You could put the laptop away. You could turn the TV off and just rest in God. And finally, in verse 39, Israel promised to obey the word of God concerning the temple. Verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. From creation to the Mosaic covenant to the new covenant, the priority has always been worship. And where did God ordain for Israel to worship? This is not a trick question. Where? The temple, right? In the temple. Nine times in this brief section in Nehemiah 10, we read of Israel promising to do something for the house of our God. There was great meaning and intentionality in that repetition. And how would they take care of the house of their God? It was big deal things. Just to name a few, a temple tax. They promised to give their money to make it possible to worship God on God's term. They promised to give wood or money to provide wood for the altar. Why? Because the altar was where they made the atonement sacrifice, atoning, demonstrating their faith in God to atone for their sins. They said, we are going to set aside funds and wood to make this possible. They gave the first fruits. That's a biblical term, right? The first fruits. We give our best. We give our first of what? Of everything, right? The first of our money, the first of our food, the first of our time. Here they, they gave their firstborn son, right? They would take their son to the temple and they would pay money to redeem him back. A beautiful picture of God's redeeming love, but a sacrifice nonetheless. They also supported the priests financially. They made it possible for the priest of God to do the work of God in the temple of God for the worship of God. So how, how are you, how are we stewarding the house of our God? How are we stewarding the house of our God? Keep in mind, the house of our God is no longer the temple, right? The house of our God is not the Liberty Theater, although we want to steward it well. What is the house of our God? You, right? The New Testament tells us that you are God's temple. We collectively are God's temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of the living God abides in us if we have put our trust in God. So are we offering ourselves to God? Are we offering our time, our money, our gifts, our talents to the people of God? I think of the book of Acts. Are we living with everything in common? What's mine is yours if you need it. What you, what's yours is mine if I need it. I will say by way of encouragement, I've only been here five months, so small sample size. But the sample size that I've seen is that our church does that well. Not perfect, but well. I, I've seen an understanding in this congregation of, of what it means to steward God's temple, God's church, God's body, God's people. And when we do that, not only does it bring glory to God and benefit to the body, but it serves as a testimony 
to a watching world who so desperately needs to be in, not this church, in God's kingdom. Amen? That's so important. So Israel, all throughout her history, had been unfaithful to God's covenant. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Israel did not abide. They had failed before. And as we'll see, spoiler alert, in Nehemiah 13, they're going to fail again. And we are just like Israel, aren't we? Aren't we? We have failed and we will fail again. What we deserve is covenant cursing. What we deserve is covenant cursing, but remember the Shane and Shane song. I hear the father of lies saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Where is the hope? If we, like Israel, have failed and we'll, will continue to fail, what hope do we have? Are we destined for cursing because we will fail again? The hope is found in Galatians 3.13. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. In light of Galatians 3.10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I expected some celebrating on that one, man. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? By works of the law? No. Galatians 3.13 says, through faith. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So the invitation this morning is so simple, yet so challenging. Trust God. Trust God. If you've never put your trust in the one true God, I invite you to do that this morning. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. But he also tells us in Ephesians 2, 10, that you, if you are in Christ are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We start with trust in our God who is gracious. We move to being his workmanship, and we fall short, and we fall short. And that's the second invitation today. If you're a Christian in the room today, maybe for the first time, maybe a long-time Christian, I want to invite us to renew our covenant together this morning. I mentioned the Lord's Supper earlier, and I want to transition us uh, into that sweet and special communal time, not an individualistic time, communal time. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Church family, we have an opportunity this morning, collectively with one voice, to renew our covenant, to declare with one voice that we are not cursed, not because we have kept the law, but because Christ kept the law. We are not cursed because Christ became a curse for us. We have the opportunity to declare this morning a covenant renewal by actually observing, as Israel was commanded to do, that Jesus said, every time you're together, through the Apostle Paul, every time you're together, do this. And this morning, we get to observe and do as an act of remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So I want to invite you for the next few minutes um, before our elders come uh, to serve communion. I want to invite you to just examine yourself, to think about how you have been viewing the law of God. Think about how you've been viewing the gospel, the grace of God, and see what needs to change in your perspective Do you tend towards legalism where you try to earn God's favor? Repent, come home, he loves you. Do you tend towards antinomianism where you say, oh, my grace, by God's grace, I'm saved. I don't even have to think about obedience. Repent, come home, his laws are good, right? Take some moments to examine yourself. As you begin to do that, I just want to read for you um, the the entirety of that Shane and Shane song says, the father of lies coming to steal, kill, and destroy all my hopes of being good enough. Cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. Oh, the devil is singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. He's singing the first verse so conveniently, but he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saved. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Father, we desire to obey you, but we depend on your grace. As we examine ourselves this morning, would you reveal to us where we need to turn to you? As we come to take the bread and the juice this morning, God, would we do it with one voice as your church in this thing together and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Take a few moments, church, to examine yourself.